Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. Thursday, 4.20 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroya's weekly session for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name is Keisha. I'm your co-moderator coming at you from what? Pullman, Washington. And I'm not the only one. Welcome back from vacation, Mandy. Oh my gosh. Hey, Keisha. Hey, everyone. So it's like to be here in person for episode 38. Can you guys believe it? Um, so yeah, we're also going live over on YouTube pretty soon. So I'll be monitoring for those questions as they roll in. Uh, just a couple of reminders um, to check out our Instagram and our TikTok. Make sure you're following us over there for all new content. Um, yeah, so we have a bunch of questions that came in. So I'll just go ahead and pass it back to the team in the podcast room. Yay. Thanks, Mandy. As always, if you're live with us here, we have a question. Type it in the chat at any time. We will, If it gets picked, we'll go ahead and ask it for you. Uh, if you're, We're also fielding questions from YouTube Live, as Mandy told you. And uh, don't forget to like and subscribe while you're there. If you're first time question asker, drop your email address in the chat. We'll enter you in a drawing to win some limited edition Arroyo swag like what you see here today. Seth and Jason. What's up, guys? How are you? Good. Good to see you in person. This is weird. This is weird, but in a really, really good way. (laughs) All right. Are you ready for our first question from Instagram? Yeah. Okay. It comes from Calicory Randy. They wrote in, struggling to hit runoff percentage in P1, and they're looking for the best strategy to increase shot duration, number of shots, or both. That's what the question is. Yeah. So uh, typically, the way I would approach that, you know, if I'm trying to increase how much I'm applying in P1, I first start with the, uh, I mean, obviously, too, this depends on whether you're in generative or vegetative, but I would potentially, not potentially, for sure, start with increasing my shot volume before jumping to an increase in number of shots. But if you hit that point where, you know, in cocoa, we're looking at up to 10%, um, rock wool usually up to six, seven. At a certain point, that shot becomes so big that we'll actually push runoff before we hit field capacity. So that's why we're breaking it up into, you know, three, four, five smaller shots rather than one big one. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Jason? Look at that. Seth got it down. Sweet. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Thank you for that question, Calicory Randy. All right. Bigsby has is asking also along the lines of P1. P1 irrigation shot size, cocoa versus rock wool. More smaller shots in rock wool versus less larger shots in cocoa. That is all they posted. Uh, yeah, it kind of follows with the last one, you know. Um, typically, cocoa, it depends on the chop, depends on the mix, can take a bit larger shot size than rock wool before creating that early runoff. So, um, you know, what we're looking at seeing is in generative, up to a five, six, seven, typically in rock wool, you know, eight to 10 in cocoa is about as big as we go. Like I said, after that, if you go out and actually watch your plants water, you're going to see runoff before your volumetric water content actually hits field capacity. Yeah. A little bit of this is actually going to be depend on how old the plant is, how much uh, root bound uh, is in that substrate. Obviously when we think about how much material is actually in the root zone, uh, when we start to get later in flower, there's a lot of ruts in there, especially if we're in appropriate size media, taking advantage of pretty much every every inch or every cubic uh, volume of that uh, substrate. Yeah, that's a good point, Jason. Compared to, uh, you know, ripening, compared to early flower generative, when I said 10, we might be looking at more like a four or five, you know, if we've got a really root-bound plant. That's, that's a great thing to bring up. And if you want to visualize it, it totally makes sense if you pull it out of that pot and you see there's almost no cocoa left at the end of yeah. that run. That's Those are always fun. And, you know, I, I think, you know, traditionally we always think about being root bound as a, a bad thing for the plant. Like we're choking out the, the roots. And um, sure, if you're if you're getting way, way too, too root bound, you can start to do that. But in this industry where we're running hydroponics, we don't necessarily need the root zone for volume. We just want to create somewhere where we can get nutrients, um, something for infrastructure for those roots. So most of the time, I'm not too concerned about getting root bound, um, but definitely if your your substrate's too small, you're more likely to have issues with crop stirring as far as being able to stay uh, enough irrigation in the substrate when you're running uh, generative just with the P1s. Yeah. And you know, some of that too will come back to like deciding what you want to do with your substrate size. You know, are you a person that likes to veg my plants up more and top them back before I go in, or am I going to veg as little as possible and then just decide which battle you want to pick more. 
you know, are you going to be battling root binding more? Or are you going to be battling, uh, okay, now I might have to grow more plants because they're a little smaller. I'm vegging them quicker. Choosing that battle, right? The life of a cultivator. All right, we're going to move on to EC. We've gotten a couple questions on that. Um, French Flair wrote in, they had a question about electrical conductivity. What is the difference between runoff EC and substrate EC? Sure. So we'll just start off with the physical difference. Obviously, runoff EC is when we've got a catch cup underneath the substrate or multiple substrates if we're trying to, to get an average over a few plants. Uh, using typically uh, just a in in solution TDS probe for electroconductivity of the nutrients in, in that um, that runoff. It's a great time to check for pH too. Uh, when we're looking at substrate EC, uh, that's usually something that's a little bit you know, more complex. There's a lot less sensors on the market in order to do that. Obviously, our Terrell's 12 has got the three prongs that so we're going right into the side of the substrate. Um, Typically, you know, the, the reference of the two values is going to depend on how much runoff you have and how, how long you're catching that. Uh, so, you know, if we look at right off the bat, sometimes we'll see that, uh, that runoff EC a little bit higher than the substrate EC as it's pushing some of the, um, the concentrated nutrients out of the bottom of the, the plant. And then uh, usually, you know, later through runoff, we'll actually see the uh, runoff EC being lower than the substrate EC. So uh, they're both good values. I like substrate EC because we're looking at its time series uh, data chart. And so we can see the dynamics when we are irrigating, especially if we're doing, you know, 12, 15 shots a day through uh, some of the vegetative steering techniques, you get an idea of, all right, when we apply this biggest shot, it changes my substrate EC to this amount. And, you know, one thing also to think about in the substrate is there is variation of water content and EC throughout there. That's why it's really important to use our um, Terrace 12 installation template tools because we've done quite a bit of testing on where at in the substrate we can get the best measurement. Yeah, and I think I think you nailed it, Jason. That time series data is what's really important there. With uh, runoff EC, all we're getting is that little snippet. And really, if we wanted to compare that to how we were going to approach this and say like, you know, a soil analytics lab or something, getting that number using, you know, a diluted nutrient solution is not going to give us a very accurate result, right? Like you or I would probably want to use deionized water, go in and say, what's actually coming out? That's a good analytical sample. Well, that's not practical in production. So we want to see, okay, not just that lowest point of EC at full saturation, but we want to see that range. You know, if we're trying to push drybacks, and also push a little higher EC. If I can't see that actual range, what my highest point in EC is, I might think I've got a nutrient deficiency. I might chase all kinds of other problems that might just be because I'm over drying a few percent. Yep. Yeah, you're exactly right. And kind of one of the practices that we usually recommend for people that have just gotten their ROIA system is continue to use both since you're used to doing uh, that runoff data and, uh, you know, log it in the system in array right next to your EC. So put the time in when, you know, when you captured that information and put the value in, and then you can compare that into your substrate EC and say, Hey, now that I have a lot more resolution to my data, this is how it compares to, to how I had been doing it. You know, and typically by the end of a run or maybe two runs, you can transfer away, save some labor and stop taking runoff readings and just uh, get used to trusting your substrate sensors. Yeah. And you know, here's another reality too, unless you're running the same strain with the same media and the same nutrients for time memoriam, in memoriam, you do want to go out and take runoff samples to look at your pH especially when you're dialing a new strain. So it's one of those just, you know, best gardening practices to be out there collecting that data and then learning how to compare it and learning which values should concern you, what shouldn't. Like if I'm taking runoff samples and I look at PPM, I'm not going to say I totally ignore that, but unless I see something crazy unbelievable, you know, 5,000 plus or something on the PPM scale, I'm not really going to look that hard at it. And I'm going to say what's going on in the root zone. And then if those two things don't, you know, come close to lining up during runoff. Um, all right, maybe I, I might go take my solace and check some other pots. Am I stabbed into an abnormal pot? You know, first, the first thing to always do is trust that the sensor is not lying to you. But the reasons that you might think it could be lying are sometimes pretty simple. Dry pocket, you're getting a salty pocket in the block. I mean, these are pretty precise instruments. And uh, I would say just having a background and using a lot of scientific instruments, 
we have probably the most simple installation protocol of just about any kind of precise instrument on the market. And uh, it's not entirely easy to mess up, but you also count on human error every once in a while as well. Mm-hmm. And kind of just, you know, when we're thinking about in application, how are some of the best ways to log this? Well, uh, definitely use your manual readings on your uh, Royal mobile app. It's super easy. Uh, you know, you just stay, it can be stayed logged in, just hit the, the app button. And then there's a little plus in the bottom left and it, it's going to snap those manual readings. Uh, so just get those put in there. Another thing to kind of keep in mind is, uh, you know, like how I started the, this question was talking about how many plants are we capturing, right? The sample size. So if we are doing it by strain or we picking enough samples to represent what's going on in that area, if you have, uh, good drain systems where you've got like a trap, that's a great spot to put in a time series, you know, an ES2 uh, and start kind of getting an idea of, all right, when I look at the entire population, you know, the, the systematic EC of the runoff, have that against the system compared to your input EC and your substrate ECs. I got to say, it's really cool to experience the nuggets of wisdom being dropped in person in real time. Extremely excited to be here. Okay. So thank you so much for that question. One of our live attendees uh, had, he raised his hand here. Johnny, can you unmute yourself and ask your question? Mm. We can't hear you, Johnny. So Johnny, do us a favor. If you could just type your question in the chat, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, speak to it. Um, In the meantime, let me go ahead and take Michael's question here. Michael wants to know, what EC and PPF would you recommend running moms? Yeah. Okay. I was like, Sorry. Sorry. Sure you doing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, typically a two to three EC and uh, at least 600 PPFD. I mean, you don't want your clones to be incredibly stretched out. We want robust, well-hardened off clones. So pretty similar to coming out of veg, you know, not encouraging you to put your moms right next to your output bench on your bedroom, but we're not looking at anything terribly special. And honestly, probably one of the biggest things to look at is how much internode space you're getting on your clones. And then, you know, looking at your training strategies and okay, do we need to up light intensity to shorten that internode space? Do we want to up light intensity to get a little faster growth? Personally, I like running them in a little higher light intensity because that means the clones I'm pulling off of those can take more light. Um, they're a little more hardened off. They have a higher chlorophyll content, more chloroplasts in their individual cells. That's what I want to do typically. Yeah, just to to add to that, you know, when we're talking about some of those parameters, also keep in mind the CO2 impact in there. Mm-hmm. You definitely want to be running uh, supplemental CO2 with your moms. Uh, it's going to be absolutely worth it when we look at uh, your cutting health and the, the cutting count that you can get off those moms. Um, they're going to grow nice and fast. So as always, you know, just kind of a, a rule of thumb. It's not exact. There's, there's lots of charts up there that tell you a relationship between the appropriate CO2 uh, PPM levels and the amount of PPFD that you're putting into there with light. And, uh, but usually I, you know, I talk about having, um, you know, what was it? CO2, uh, about 200 points off yep. of your PPFD. Yep. PPFD plus 200 to 250. And that's usually a nice cushion. And, uh, you know, luckily so far CO2 usually isn't that expensive. So that 200 PPM isn't going to break the bank. Well, you know, when we think about improving processes if we are getting a fast start it's going to translate all the way throughout that plant life cycle mm-hmm. i you know i definitely think that cloning is an area where sops are extremely important you know if you can keep a, a similar cloning staff that is used to the way that you're doing it you're going to have much less problems down the road and you know as as we know the if you do run into problems they're way easier to correct when these plants are younger Michael, thank you so much for your question. Good to see you. Glad you joined us today. All right, Johnny, thank you for typing your question in the chat here. Here's Johnny's question. I'm asking about foxtailing. Why does it happen? What can we do to mitigate? Is there any way to help control via crop steering or or more so a strain nutrient issue? Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, so typically when I've seen foxtailing in the past, it's generally a heat-related issue. And what that is is certain strains... um, it's just a genetic trait, right? In the presence of high heat, they will stretch out and produce foxtails. That's to help dissipate heat within the plant. That's why we see, you know, if we look back at um, 
some like land race varieties from equatorial areas. A lot of times they don't have little tight nugs like we like. They're pretty blown out and foxtaily. Um, typically it's a heat problem combined with that genetic trigger. So if a strain's going to do it and you run that thing above 85 to 90 degrees, you're most likely going to get some foxtailing. And a big place I actually see it is uh, when people are really trying to crank that PPFD with their HID lights. As they're starting to lower that, sometimes the top, those top colas, top layer nugs will start to see some foxtailing because if you take your thermometer and go shine it at it, your room might be 77, but that top nug just a foot under the light might be like 95. Yeah, this is where, you know, tracking your crop recipes is so important. If you can detail a harvest group and be like, well, we saw foxtailing in two out of the three strains in this room. Well, now we know that the one strain is, is probably better suited for how you ran that environment and some of those irrigation parameters. And the answer of mitigating with crop steering, absolutely. When we talk about crop steering in here, a lot of times we are focused on uh, irrigation just simply because it is a major factor and, and we kind of are, are compounding on what's kind of known in environment about crop steering, but it's all of those parameters combined, right? And typically we want some type of balance between all of those. You know, if we're running an extremely generative type of uh, irrigation system, sometimes we want to be a little bit vegetative in our, our humidity and, and, um, and temperatures in those rooms. So just kind of keep in mind how all of those are playing on, on the plant physiology. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about a dynamic environment. You know, if we want the drybacks, we need the VPD. If we want the VPD, we've got to have the environmental control to achieve it. So it, it isn't, it's never just any of those one, one factors such as irrigation mm -hmm. or nutrients. That's for sure. And, you know, on the foxtailing topic, one thing that I like to point out to people and they're real concerned about it, um, man, unless you're trying to shove that top nug into a single jar, as long as the rest of the nugs fine, if you just got a few foxtails, usually that's an easy problem to trim out. And then like Jason said, look at, look at your holistic approach next time. And if you are seeing foxtails, honestly, one of the biggest things is have that patience to finish that run and look at the whole run day by day at the end of it. Don't look at what happened last week. Don't look at what happened yesterday. Look at what happened two months ago and then everything in between. Cause sometimes it's easy to miss, you know, a big mistake just because you see all these little issues that are popping up and you're dealing with every day. Take a bunch of pictures. If mm -hmm. you can do a picture of each strain in the room every day, that's going to give you an idea of at what stage those things really started developing the wrong morphology that you ideally were shooting for. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know, maybe in the last week, maybe it, it started uh, doing that three weeks in, and that'll also mm -hmm. help you identify some of the environmental or irrigation based parameters that, uh, that led up to that response. I love that. Just uh, reminding everybody that your your data is your those those metrics are valuable. Finding the trends and and what's going on with your cultivation, being able to track it and be able to identify stuff. That's so cool. Okay, I've got another question from Instagram. Oh wait, I think we had some shout outs from YouTube, right, Mandy? Yeah. So we got a couple shout outs over on YouTube. Um, some people. Uh, saying, hey, we got some people from Hawaii giving us shout outs. Um, that's from Greg. We have um, a couple of cultivators out in Oklahoma City. Um, so yeah, just saying hi to you guys. Um, if you have any questions, make sure you submit them and I'll make sure I get them to the team. Yeah, Back thanks, Mandy. Hey, what's up to everybody out there? So glad to have y'all on. All right, we're gonna keep it moving. Berserker1015 wrote in, what do you want the EC substrate to be at during harvest? Uh, so we, we go over this quite a few, quite a few times. And when we are looking at time series data, uh, there could be a massive discrepancy in our irrigation, uh, or our, our substrate EC at irrigation, uh, versus just before irrigation. So I full dry back and probably the biggest dynamics that we are going to see is at harvest. So, uh, you know, if we've dropped our, our feed EC maybe to, you know, three quarters or half strength nutrients, um, we could be going in at say, you know, one and a half or two EC in the, the feed levels. And, uh, that substrate EC is going to drop down quite a bit when we irrigate with that a little slightly less, nutrient-rich water than we're used to. Uh, the thing is, is we're pushing massive drybacks during this ripening phase because one, we're, you know, trying to, to signal this plant to finish up as best as possible. And two, we have huge plants that are transpiring a lot. 
And so, you know, we, we could see a, a range spike of, you know, anywhere between say on the low end at two, if you've got a lot of runoff and at the high end, 15, 20, uh, you know, this is one stage where I don't necessarily get too worried about really high ECs because we're, we're taking these plants down, uh, soon and we're not going to necessarily risk any detrimental effects. Um, so yeah, it, it's going to depend on when you're taking that substrate EC during, uh, between irrigations. Yeah. I think there's a, one big thing to remember about all this when you're looking at EC in the root zone is that interaction that salt water actually has with the plants. So when we're talking about a nutrient solution, a big part of what we're talking about is osmotic stress on the plant. And not that we're always stressing the plant hard, but the plant has to adapt to that changing osmotic environment. So when we come into the end, you know, there is no hard, fast rule on what EC we want to be at. Like Jason said, some plants might be up at that 14, 15. I've seen some that are finishing in 10 on the low end and 22, 23 on the upper end at the dry side. And guess what? They looked great. You know what happened though? That particular person got their EC up early on. They maintained a relatively high EC and then they realized that if they were to drop that right out, they were really going to change that root zone environment, probably at the detriment to the plant's roots. So when we're talking about root zone EC, you know, number one, tapering off feed, like Jason was talking about, we do want to taper that down, but we don't want to drop it out. We don't want to hit two weeks before and just start flushing everything out of there. We want to gently bring that down if we're going to. And then also think about what you're actually putting in, you know, um, I'm not going to name any specifically, but I do know a lot of people that will fish to switch to a finishing product so that they can maintain EC in their feed, say at that 1.5 to 2.0, but they're pulling back nitrogen, they're pulling back other elements that they know the plant's not gonna use during that time period. And there are products out there that do kind of give you a one-stop solution for that and make it easier, rather than you trying to worry about, okay, do I pull out part A, part, you know, what, what am I pulling out here to make sure I'm not messing it up? And if you're not gonna take it super far, I would highly recommend just what Jason said, you know, taper down your PDC and slowly ride it out. Yeah. And I talked about this already here today. It's if you can document what worked well, that's going to get you so far ahead on each of these strains and you won't be chasing your tail. Uh, try not to modify too many variables. So if, you know, if you say, Hey, this, this, uh, nutrient level was good for this strain type during that run, well, then keep it there for a few runs and maybe try and play with something else that you're looking to optimize at your facility. All right, I think we're moving over to YouTube. We got some questions over there, right, Mandy? Yeah, we did have a couple questions roll in. Um, Johnson Owen wants to know, my plants have tight nugs until three weeks before harvest, then they loosened up. I believe it was because I didn't know about crop steering. I was running 20% dry back, I increased dry back to 40% and a little bit of clarification. I'm in five gallon cloth pots with cocoa perlite mix and 800 watt LEDs. Any advice? Uh, it's hard to say, you know, without, without having some detailed graphs of all the, the inputs in their relationship to your plants. Uh, I would probably, yeah, look at irrigation timing changes, uh, and runoffs and nutrient concentrations to think about uh, you know, that plant might be running a little bit more generative or excuse me, a little bit more vegetative and you didn't run your generative, uh, steering quite long enough. You know, obviously if you didn't know about crop steering, then you're probably somewhere in the, the balance. Uh, if you're in five gallon soft pots, there's a chance you're also hand watering. Uh, and so kind of, kind of hard for us to just nail it down to, to one, one factor here. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I would have to guess that if you're using a perlite mix, you probably don't have a very high water holding capacity in your media, which means there's a good chance that you're not able to achieve a full 22 hour dry back in the day. Um, that's been my experience in running, you know, a 50 50 or a 30 70 perlite to cocoa mix. Um, you know, as you're moving forward and learning to grow with sensors and actually stop leaning on like let's say perlite as a crutch there's a lot better possibility that you can run generatively at the end because that would typically be a classic sign of like uh we see this all the time with people running in the hugos they flip a plant too big everything's going good then we get to that last three weeks and it's like wow if we go two hours without watering we have a pretty much a wilting plant mm -hmm. and i i'm not there so i can't know if that's exactly what you're experiencing but it really it sounds a lot like that to me 
Yeah, and he might just be on the other end of that. In a five-gallon soft pot, uh, we could be growing some seriously massive plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and you know, one thing to remember too, if you have that high perlite concentration in there, even if we're not giving it a lot of water, we do have a bigger pore space. So we are able to introduce more oxygen into that root zone. So even though we're not pulsing it quite as much, in totality, we're putting more oxygen into the root zone and that perlite's holding it there longer. So not intentional, but unintentionally vegetative. Yeah, you'll have to let us know, John, if that answered your question. And yeah, stick with us so we can learn more about craft and we can get to the bottom of this. Uh, we also got a shout out from, uh, I believe, the cultivator in Oklahoma City. Happy to be here. Been using Arroyo for a year and it's very helpful. Great to hear. Uh, we love to hear that. So welcome, welcome. So glad to have y'all here. All right, we're back to Instagram. Question from Kevin's Greens. How do you humidify your room without calcifying everything? First best step would be run your uh, humidifier water through your RO. So uh, that's going to be the probably the easiest factor to to try and help help out with that. Uh, and then also have you know high quality humidifier in there. So you know if you can use something that does vaporize that water as best as possible, it's less likely to build up any uh, minerals on your surfaces. Yep, you know. Uh, a lot of growers will know if I joke about smaller bubbles and things. <laughs> smaller droplets are, are better, just like smaller bubbles at dispersing what we want to disperse yeah. here. And then obviously it's always good to do a good good room clean afterwards. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously, as usual, prevention is the best thing, but uh, maintenance is usually what it's going to take. Yep. Hard water issues are never fun. That's for sure. I imagine if we're talking about this, you might have, you know, some interesting irrigation issues and stuff that you deal with from time to time. And Jason said, RO, as much as a lot of us don't want to pay for it, going back to a highly filtered water source, uh, sometimes is the easiest, easiest solution to dealing with, you know, clogging equipment and hard water issues. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you all for that, that answer. Keeping it moving here. Drunk, drunk nomad, 40 ounce wants to know and great handle by the way um they're looking for tips on how to control the three-week stretch any thoughts on that guys uh generative steering yep long drybacks higher humidity not high high humidity but you know we're looking at that 1.9 to 1.1 1.2 vpd that way we're not you know you always want to think of the air like a person sucking up through a straw. If they're sucking really, really hard, suddenly we, you know, get that nice empty sound at the bottom with the ice. Yeah. If we suck a little slower, we can draw that out. It's a great analogy. Thank you. All right. Going to keep it going. And just a reminder to those of us who are, those of y'all who are on with us live, type your questions into the chat so we can get you to talk to the experts. This is the best chance. All right. King Green Beast. These handles. Love them. Wants to know, what result differences have been recorded on 6% dryback versus 4% on P2 waterings? As far as like results recorded, I would say that the frequency of P2 waterings and their effects are highly strain dependent. So some strains that naturally grow more generatively, we can hit that with, uh, you know, say as many P2s as we want. And at that point, we're looking at more like a 1% dryback between P2s. If we're looking at four versus six, the reality is not so much that that four to six percent affects anything on the plan. It's about the time between the two irrigations. So we're talking about going two thirds as long or the whole way if we're talking about four versus six and plant to plant. That's actually going to vary a lot in how it affects it. Like I said, some plants that grow more generatively, they're going to respond to this bulking by just swelling up. If we look at some plants that classically grow a lot more vegetatively, um, always talk about it, you know, the classic diesels, some of the hazes, anything that we always thought was a sativa that ran 10 weeks. Uh, typically what we're going to look at is like, yeah, we probably aren't going to hit those super hard with the P2s because we're not trying to get them to stretch up into the ceiling. Mm-hmm. You know, we might run something like that generatively most of the way through just because, you know, after a few times running it, tried bulking and we always suffer a quality loss. And then we're looking at a strain that you know, may not be worth your time to try to grow in your particular facility. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to plan a business, you've got to keep everything lined up so that you've got reliable income. If I'm switching from eight weeks to 10 weeks to nine weeks, 
different strains every time. And I'm making constant sacrifices for my other plants. Cause I've got these finicky ones. Well, I'm leaving a lot on the table and I've got to decide whether I want to, you know, focus on that one strain that's really hard to grow because it doesn't play happy in the same room as the others mm. or throw that out and keep moving on. You know, uh, there's a whole world of genetics out there and fortunately it just keeps getting better all the time. That's been my experience. Yeah. Kind of, I absolutely agree with you on it may not make that big a difference between, you know, say a 4% and 6%, especially considering the time spacing. Uh, what it might make a difference on is how you can operate your facility. Do you have appropriate pump sizing that you can time these irrigations correctly? Uh, are, you know, are your emitter sizes so that you can get those shots in there fast enough or slow enough? in order to to hit the timing across all your rooms and then those sorts of things. So kind of probably more operationally focused than necessarily plant physiology when you're when you're that close together. Oh yeah, certainly at a big facility, you know, when we're talking about a pump that can only operate, let's say two zones at a time and I've got 20 in that room, I've got to plan that into my planning. If it's not possible for me to start back over inside of that time period, then obviously we're not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to go to the six instead of the four sometimes. You're, you're absolutely right, Jason. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you're in a wonderful spot where you have the luxury to uh, do whatever you want, keep track of your EC modulation. So look at that time series EC and decide is the 4% or the 6% achieving me a little bit better dynamics with uh, my nutrient content in the substrate. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Keeping it moving. Our next question from Instagram comes from Sergio JN12. They're looking for tips on growing in six by six rock wool. Any recommendations for that? Grow them fast. Keep yeah. them short. Do you know the people I know that are still trying to rock that on a commercial level? Some of them are getting back to like a seven to eight day veg, mm -hmm. flipping them small. That way they can still finish the plant. Um, my advice in that is I, I really hope you didn't buy too many of those. And I would look at investing in a little bit different rock wool media. Um, slabs aren't the only solution, but one thing to think about is that six by six by six has, you know, only a six by six footprint. Most of our water is in the bottom two inches of that. That's why slabs are bigger on the bottom and we have that small block on top. So realize the limits of your media size, I guess would be the biggest tip there. You know, if, if you've got like a two or three tier uh, facility in each room where you don't have necessarily as much headspace as possible, sometimes six by six isn't a bad option simply because you're going to push more degeneratively throughout that plant cycle and uh, and try to optimize the shorter space that you have with the number of plants. Usually that means that, yeah, sh shorter veg times and uh, definitely you know, try, and, try and not run into a situation where you can't run generatively because you've run out of uh, substrate capacity. Yeah. It's, it's important to know your facility and realize what you're actually going to be able to accomplish in there. If before you were growing in three and a half gallon cocoa pots and growing five, six foot tall plants, and you want the same kind of plant density planting with uh, Hugo's, the six by six by sixes, your strategy is going to have to be vastly different. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to change all at once. And if you're not aware of those limitations that you put yourself into, you're going to have a really rough first run. If you can look at it and look at some of the parameters Jason was talking about, like instead of saying, how do I adapt this big or this rock wool block to my facility? It's more like, what's the optimum facility for this to be growing in? And is that me? And yeah, for like a lot of double tiered customers, for sure. You know, if you're running double tier and you've got four and a half feet of overhead space, well, yeah, you probably should be saving some money with your media, you know, and then beyond that, we'll start looking at like, all right, plant counts and what, you know, state to state, a lot of laws, there's different facility designs that, you know, work better from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, there's no huge tips on that. Just know what you're doing. No, know you're growing in a small pot. There we go. That sounds like a pretty solid tip to me. All right. I think we've got a question from YouTube. What's going on over there, Mandy? Um, hey, guys. Yeah, we did get another question over on YouTube. Um, LBC2OKC wants to know, do nighttime temperature drops or increases have major effects on plant stretching during the early flower generative stage? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it is going to be fairly strain dependent and how much of a nighttime temperature differential that you're pushing. Uh, 
yeah, it, it probably is going to have an effect on on how much they're stretching or, or not stretching. Is it the only thing that's going to affect that? Absolutely not. You know, we're looking at nutrient contents, irrigation numbers, light intensities. Those are all factors that are going to have a huge play. Uh, are you ramping your temperature differential? Are you hitting it as a, a you know one set point to lower set point uh, on a instantaneous, if you will, uh, transition? Those are those are all going to come into play. Uh, so I wish I could give you the exact answer or tell you how much it plays part, but that's that's more variables than than we can can deal with. Yeah, if if everything else was given the same, we know that heat plays a role in plant metabolism and growth. So if we're slowing it down for part of the day, we can expect to see growth slowed. Um, to me, the bigger question is why would I want to slow that down? Because if I've got my plant that if I've got my veg down, I'm coming in with the appropriate plant size. I actually do want vigorous growth during that stretch. But when I say vigorous growth, I'm growing vigorously toward the morphology that I want, that I desired. So um, if we're feeling like, you know, our plants are coming in too big at the end of stretch, we really should be looking at, all right, how are we treating those in veg coming in? You know, what are we doing? And, and on that range, like that could go anywhere from like, are we low light intensity in veg? So we're stretching like crazy when we get in, you know, there's a lot of factors to look at there besides just that temperature differential. Um, overall though, that's why we don't recommend running much of a differential during stretch. You know, if you naturally have a couple degree swing just because, hey, the sun went down and I've got this retrofitted building that's not freezer panels. Well, that's okay. Um, typically, though, we want to see that fairly stable. And another part of that, too, is, you know, during stretch, we also kind of want to minimize that uh, VPD ranging throughout the day. We want to keep that at a pretty steady rate. That way our drybacks are predictable, you know, because at first during stretch, they're going to be it's going to be hard to get that huge dryback by week three. Sometimes we might be hitting that point where we're putting a maintenance shot on. So we want a really predictable environment because if we can get through that first stretch, maintaining EC, not having to necessarily put on maintenance shots, um, we can really push it generatively and then also nail that transition into veg and set ourselves up for success there. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point that you have about the, the plant metabolism and using other factor variables to, to hit that. Because definitely when we're um, in that stage of plant life, we want to be creating as much sugars and energy for storage uh, in that plant as we possibly can, as fast as we can. And if there's something that we can do to uh, minimize our inner node spacing uh, without modifying the temperature, that's probably a better course of action. Awesome. Yeah, you'll have to let us know if you have any follow-ups to that question. We got a couple others uh, over on YouTube. Marlon wants to know, can you guys talk about PGRs? Plant growth regulators. So uh, they're becoming more and more of a hot topic. They're, I don't know about the legality of using all of them on different cannabis crops in the U.S. Personally, I uh, don't really advocate for them. Mm. Mostly because it's just another thing to spray on your plants. <laughs> you know, we've got another humidity issue. And if you're at all familiar with actually using PGRs to manipulate plant growth, I would highly suggest you start doing tissue culture and start there and see what kind of effects you have. You know, if I take a spray that is uh, the wrong ratio of oxen to cytokinin or has jasmonic acid, I mean, we can go down the line of all these different PGR comp compounds that act as PGRs. But I would say that if you're inexperienced, it's a really good way to ruin a crop right off the top. And I personally, going out there, haven't seen the greatest results using them. Um, mm -hmm. And by ruin, I'm saying you could spray a plant and suddenly we're trying to get this plant, you know, closer to ripening or to pack on bud size. Well, if my ratio is off, I might just foxtail it out, might mm -hmm. blow that nug up and might overdrive it in growth. I mean, here's a good thing to remember. If we're going to talk about PGRs, uh, 2,4-D, one of the most popular herbicides of all time, is a plant growth regulator that causes plants to grow itself to death. So <laughs> it's a dangerous game. And personally, I don't think it's one that cannabis producers need to be playing right now. Mm -hmm. If you think that's what you need, I guess you've realized that you can't afford to put the money into your facility and acquire the genetics that you actually need mm -hmm. to make your business successful. Uh, that's, that's what I was going to go with is, is maybe try and source some better genetics that you don't need to to modify. Awesome. You'll have to let us know, Marlon, if you have any follow-up questions with that. Um, we got another question over on YouTube. The oil farmer's wife wants to know, what's the ideal height at the end of stretch? 
what strain are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> how much height are you trying to get the, into how, power? How high are your lights off the bench? I'm going to put it right there. <laughs> I'm going to say, depending on your light, about 12 to 18 inches below the light. <laughs> but that, even that range is a bunch. Um, no, there is no ideal height for stretch. And that's why, you know, we keep talking about a lot of these crop steering tools being something, just that a tool that you as an operator need to know how to use. There is no, um, it's the old saying, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. Mm. And while that's not 100% true, there are a lot of ways to do this. Just like we talked, depending on your state by state place, if I have square footage, my strategy is going to be different than if it's plant count in a given building. You know, there's a lot of aspects to look at, but again, they are tools and we want to dial all of our actions to the strain. That's, that's the whole point in driving, you know, these really complicated and expensive growing facilities. If we didn't need that, we wouldn't. If all you needed was a hoop house out in the back mm -hmm. to produce quality cannabis, mm -hmm. everyone would be doing it. But it turns out it takes more input and it doesn't have to be indoor necessarily that, you know, I don't want to offend our outdoor growers out there, but everyone knows it's a lot harder than just throwing some seeds on the ground and coming back in a few months. Yeah. And it's always going to be that way. Yeah. And the reality is, is these are tools that you want to learn how to use. Uh, our industry is obviously getting into a very wide genetic range and what is popular for genetic, uh, as far as shelves product goes, uh, changes month to month. Mm -hmm. We can see massive swings in preferences on the, uh, on the consumer side of this. And so if, if you learn how to use those tools, it puts yourself in a much more competitive position for the future because you're, you're able to maybe run strains that have a big difference in them in different rooms, you know, and, and optimize for each of those that you have uh, better purchasing power or better selling power uh, to, to the shelving. You know, obviously if you're just running everything that's middle of the line, there's less chance that you're going to have a wide consumer basis. Yeah. And you know, one thing I like to always remember is a lot of these, these tools were developed, uh, not necessarily just for cannabis. They came from industries where people were focused on a much smaller profit margin. So if we look at, you know, horticulture as a whole, um, more and more just knowing these types of skills is necessary to survive in the workplace and be, you know, a competitive employee. Um, it's, it's just kind of the nature of, uh, our world becoming more efficient and utilizing technology to do all of our jobs a little better mm -hmm. all the time. It's about the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's so true. Um, the oil farmer's wife wanted to say, thank you. Got it. Awesome answer. Um, we did get a couple more questions in that time. Marlon wants to know ETA on Arroyo for the home and small facility growers. Anything in the works? It is in the works. Uh, absolute ETA. I'm not comfortable putting it out there at this point in this stage of the project. Top secret, you guys. Sorry, you're going to have to check back. Yeah. Uh, I'll Stay tell you all, there's, there's too many home growers out there. We're scared. <laughs> we, I'm, I'm one of them. We, we don't want the launch to be kind of like, you know, all the, like, what was it? Like the Bronco and all the new cars that come out. They're like the Tesla truck. You sign up and years later, you right. know, we're trying to avoid that kind of thing. Cause I think if we open that can of worms, our order list would be so long that we'd all just kind of quit and go do something else. Cause it's overwhelming. Yeah. We want to dial it in and get it right. <laughs> yeah. Get it right for y'all. Awesome. It's just, uh, it's, it's kind of like the, the markets, you know, when we look at uh, California, uh, market oversaturated really fast, uh, the, the growers could overkeep up with it. Uh, places like maybe on the East coast, they were much more limited and, and people mm -hmm. couldn't get product for, for a long, long time. Uh, you know, shelves were, were empty places would blow out every time that they got restocked. Uh, so yeah, we want to take more of like the Washington approach where it's a fairly steady launch and release and, and we can provide a, a great experience for anyone in that uh, that projectable timeline awesome thank you for that marlon and then hoffman's choice wants to know do you have any general guidelines for sensor height in a grow medium uh i'm running two gallon at the moment mm. two gallon i think for sensor height we're at one and a quarter as yep. well exactly or is that the the one gallon that's one to two gallon one to two bags. gallon. Yeah. Okay. Blocks and bags. And then when we go to like a three to five, we'll scoot it up. And, you know, um, probably one of the biggest keys there is use that tool. So you're consistent. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in realistically, I could scoot that sensor up or down and I'm going to get a different reading, but what I want is to compare 
the same reading between two plants. If I'm taking two different data points, I can't compare them. So, you know, that sensor is going to give you a really accurate measurement. And remember that just a little bit up and down is not going to affect. Uh, oh, I saw a really good definition or a really good explanation the other day of the difference between precision and accuracy. Mm -hmm. But we want to be precise and accurate. Yeah. Precision's how close yeah. are our readings to each other? Exactly. Accuracy is how close are those readings to the actual reading? Right. Um, and, you know, one thing that if you want to check on how well you're doing with that installation, you can always run a, a manual water content uh, test as well. Uh, I know I think a while ago Ramsey did a video uh, telling you how to, you know, measure the weight of dry substrate, measure it at saturation, and you know, have your sensor in that place. And does that uh, that weight match what the water content says from from the sensor so that's that's a great way if you are changing media types you mm -hmm. get used to that um and you're sure you're, you're welcome to modify those heights a little bit we've tested them with with quite a few medias and that's why we do send out that installation template tools just to kind of help the clients unify across the industry um the volume of influence is basically the amount of volume that that sensor is taking a measurement for and on the terrace 12 it's about one liter and so, uh, you know, that, that one liter, we're trying to take a sample that represents as much of the substrate as possible. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you so much to our YouTube folks. Keep those questions coming. We're going to move on to our Hangouts chat here. Johnny asks a couple questions. First one here, he would love to know any, we would love to hear any irrigation strategies for tips on maximizing terpenes. That's there. Yeah, so you know when we approach crop steering, it's a balance between um, how much product and how quality a product. Yes, you can absolutely get both, but it takes the perfect crop steering to, to optimize both of those together at the same time. Uh, and so, yeah, irrigation strategies would be documenting how you crop steered for that run, what were the documented test results for uh, terpene profiles on it, and you know, start making one modification at a time for that strain specifically. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a pretty direct one, honestly. Um, if we're looking at maximizing terpenes and we still want to be crop steering, there's a really important thing to remember. A lot of people are coming out of, you know, gray market, home and medical growing, having run an extremely generative uh, steering strategy all the way through. You know, back in the days of using, say, a five-gallon pot, I'm watering once a day, maybe once every other day. That's pushing that as generative as possible. So when we're looking at using crop steering to maximize terpenes, um, we got to look at, okay, how much do we want to bulk this out? And when are we willing to pull back from bulking into a generative steer? So if, mm -hmm. and, and it's again, going to be strain dependent. Some strains are going to do great running a vegetative steer right up till they have only one week of ripening, let's say, you know, but some of them I've found, um, kind of want to start pulling back that ripening at maybe three weeks in and start really focusing on that. And, uh, you know, just start to, like Jason said, document it, figure out how those, you know, different irrigation strategies affected that. And then also look at your other, your other variables, you know, once you've got everything down to a streamlined process where you're like, Hey, this is what works for me. The only thing I'm changing is my settings on when I'm watering really document that. Cause it's going to, like I said, it's just really going to range on screens. And the one thing we do know is that generative stress is how we, uh, really bulk up not so much flower production, but reproductive production. So those, you know, terpenes, cannabinoids, that's how we really mature those resin glands mm -hmm. and being patient. You know, some plants, it's a 10 week plant. It's a 10 week plant. You're never going to harvest it in 56 days and have the same quality, no matter what you do. Awesome. I love that question. Okay. And then Johnny has a second question here. Um, is there an optimal number of plants per sensor? Our recommendation is is one sensor per 100 square foot of canopy. Um, basically, what we're doing there is just trying to optimize uh, the cost of installation and getting enough sensors in there for quality sampling. Um, I, I did a, a growth behavior video. I think it's up on our YouTube, uh, I think about a year ago now. And it's kind of just talking about the statistics of, of population and that's why we go with that one per hundred square foot, just to minimize the costs up front to getting installed, but uh, maximizing the uh, 
reliability of that data, the chance that all of your crop is uh, is doing well. So obviously if we're crop steering, we typically get a crop steer on, we want to do it on the average across all of those sensors. If we have a very wide average, we're going to see a very wide result. It's going to be quite a bit more varied. So uh, also kind of one of the strategies when someone starts using Arroyo is focus first on the consistency of your plants and then focus on your, your uh, modulating your goals. Yep. That's what I was going to touch on, Jason. I would say, show me a picture of your table and let's see uh, how much variation we've got in your plants. If you've got very, you know, if one plant harvests out at 900 grams wet and the one next to it's hitting 450 or five, uh, we, we got to work on that consistency before we can even really crop steer within that zone. Because if that's at that point, you know, if we stick the most average plant, we can assume if we got a hundred plants, 48 or above and 49 or below, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or 50, yeah. 48, 48 50, 52, 52. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> We're going to be slightly above and slightly below the best we can hope for is an average. So we've got to make that average range, that standard deviation from what we want to be perfect as small as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was I was stunned by the number of uh, clients that I worked with, especially early on, that uh, had been talking about their experience with a much much more expensive water content EC sensor that was uh, available in the market before Arroyo, and they would say, "Hey, the the plant that I had the sensor in in that one room, or the because they'd have like one sensor in a room, and they'd be like, that plant grew well, uh, and the, the rest of the the room didn't do well. So uh, that was obviously." A great way for them to learn about uniformity versus consistency Mm -hmm. and really you know i mean i always say it horticulture is an art and a science and you're not really an artiste so much as an artisan you need to be able to make produce quality work repeatedly every time when we're talking about cloning vegging so yes there's art but that skill level is very very important in maintaining consistency you know the technology helps us increase that consistency but if we're not willing to put in the work and have uh, quality work at every stage, then the technology is not going to help you either. Hmm. You've got to actually be able to act on it. That's that's very well said. Uh, I mean, if I was a painter and I had really good paintbrushes sometimes and really poor paintbrushes sometimes, I might not always be as... Uh, as good as my skills or if uh you know I have yeah. different levels of, of clay and i've been firing uh, coffee mugs and and pots and plant um then obviously some clay would crack yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's part of your part of your art is uh making sure that you know if you're really approaching it with a passion you're trying to do it at the best level you can at every stage of production mm-hmm but we also got to make money. So <laughs> we all end up making, you know, some little compromises here and there. And that's just farming. Getting that balance in. Yep. That's right. just farming. That's just farming. <laughs> hey, at least we don't. Well, never mind. I was about to say something about diesel, but some people have to pay for that too in the cannabis industry. Mm. So. All right, Mandy, I think we have a YouTube. Yeah, we did have a couple more uh, comments come over on YouTube. Hoffman's Choice wanted to say the tool has been great. Thanks, team. Awesome. Thank you so much. And then Casey wants to know, this is a fun one, what's the backstory on Arroyo and Ramsey with uh, our company? And they love the Solus. Oh. Sure. Uh, so if we go way, way back, uh, I think Ramsey actually purchased one of the largest systems that we'd done at the time. Uh uh, back when I was out doing research on, on getting the product out there. So we had some, some prototype equipment for Arroyo and, and Ramsey ended up being, uh, you know, a, a big purchasing factor at the company he was working with and um, did some awesome things with the product. And so, uh, you know, after I think his interest was in, you know, really in applying some of the technology that he was learning about and his background with um, crop steering and, and substrate information uh, and just simple love for plant physiology uh, brought them to us and so we connected up and uh, can only say you know the best things about our relationship with Ramsey still works with us on our advisory board I like just calling him up to talk with the guy and see how his tomatoes are doing his family and his kids so uh, now that's the backstory is we gained a ton of uh, ton of knowledge Um, I have to credit Ramsey with quite a bit about what I know when it comes to crop steering Mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah, we I miss him. We miss him, but we're we're you know we're happy to meet with him pretty regularly as a as an advisor for for our products. I know I'm dying to meet him. I haven't met him yet. 
Yeah, same. But I learned so much through his videos. All and the you time, guys can yeah. find all those over on Aurelia.io or on our YouTube channel. But yeah, that's the final question over on YouTube. All right. Well, in these last few minutes, I think we'll go with Daniel's question. Last year, Daniel wants to know, when trying out cocoa in a room instead of slabs, which pot size or pot style and cocoa will give me dry back similar to slabs? Um, just do some volume calculations. Uh, you know, if we want to say, yeah, similar drybacks, we're probably going to look at, you know, water content times uh, volume itself. So if you were doing four by fours on a slab, just add up the four by fours and the slab divided by the number of plants that you have uh, times that by your water content and then do the same thing for, for your cocoa bags. Uh, and I, I don't know exactly what it works out to off the top for, of my head. For most people that aren't double stacked, either a one and a half or two gallon, it's strain dependent. And some of the people I find having the most success with cocoa that if you looked at their charts, you might guess it was rock wool. Typically, that's what they do for their bigger strains. They've got a two gallon pot that they pick a brand. Um, I try to be brand agnostic, but there are several brands out there that will hit, you know, that 55 to 65 percent volumetric water content. Um, that's really what you got to look for. Just make sure that that matches up. If that's if that's what you're trying to run is rock wool like volumetric water content numbers. That's where you start is making sure you can hit that same field capacity. And then, as Jason said, make sure you've got the appropriate volume now. When you go out in the world and actually try to translate that, there's so many options that you're going to get kind of close. And then we talk about, you know, well, if the company is Canadian, uh, a gallon's a little closer to four liters or more. And if they're in the U.S., it's 3.78. So just make sure you get all the information you can when you're trying to make those media choices and make sure you're comparing apples to apples and you always have plant size to pot volume as a reference. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you say that because you know here here in the states um we're always talking about you know some slabs being uh or some cubes being six by sixes or four by fours most of the suppliers on these especially traditional ones that we're used to actually have those cut to a metric measurement Um, and so if you want to be exactly accurate which you might as well be because it's just as easy uh look up the size specs or measure them yourselves Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of these products were coming out of Europe, a lot of them right now come out of Canada mm-hmm. and they are using metric numbers, which aren't exactly at that six by six per se. Cool. Uh, it's, it's what number in metric is close to six by six. And as being Americans, we just say what's easy to say, what we're yep. used to in size. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, you know, it's not going to be a huge difference, but if you're times that by, you know, three plants in a substrate and you're trying to correlate that to a, another substrate that maybe did come from the U.S. or was using slightly different measuring standards, then it can exaggerate. So well, might as well be accurate. Here's something I like to bring up too. We use, uh, in, in the way that we crop steer and calculate irrigation, we use SA units. We use milliliters and liters. So instead of converting from gallons to liters and then milliliters, guess what? You can just get all the specs from the manufacturer in milliliters. Mm -hmm. And like Jason said, it's just as easy to plug the right numbers into your equation as it is to plug close to right numbers into your equation. You know, the information's out there. You just got to grab it. Amazing. Mandy, any other final words from our YouTube friends? Um, I believe that's it. Um, Verde did join. Verde Claro joined late. Sorry, I'm late. I'm always late because I'm high. We get it. Hi, we get it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it happens to us. We will be later. Yeah, thank everyone I'll over speak there. For myself. That's the final question of my end. <laughs> Seth and Jason, first time doing this in person. I hope it wasn't too weird. No, it was fun. It was great for me. I loved it. I hope you all loved it. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Any final words before we sign off? Yeah, keep coming back up here, and we'll get to yeah. get you your own mic. That's Look what I was going to say. We'll get you a mic. Watch we out. We didn't bump heads. No. no. We did pretty good. Watch out, folks. I might be an expert on crop steering very soon <laughs> with my two little plants in the backyard rehydrating those. I was overwatering you guys. I, I realize that now. <laughs> all right. On that note, everybody, thank you all for joining us for this week's Array Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. If you have any questions about Arroyo, book a demo. Our experts will talk you through all the features and tell you how it can help be used to improve your cultivation production process. But as always, let us know if there's a topic you want covered in a future Office Hours session. Post it in the chat. Send us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com or 
drop us a DM over Instagram. We want to hear from you. We record every session. Um, we'll email everybody in attendance and link to the video from today. And then it'll live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if this is useful, please do spread the word. Thank you all so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks, guys. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.